0: and welcome! You're listening to Exploring, a podcast which dives into the extra yet ordinary journeys of people leading unconventional work for our planet. My name is Maria, and I'm here to talk with innovators, artists, and entrepreneurs who are leading groundbreaking ventures. And I invite you to join us so that we can uncover some interesting insights together. Today, we're going to have a special episode. Not only is it going to be the last one of season one of Exploring, but in addition to that, I have invited two guests, the founders of Conservation X-Labs, Alex Dagan and Paul Bungie, for some real talk about their beginnings, what it took to to create this transformative organization? What exciting things are they building now? And where do they want to go from here with their passions and visions for the near future? Let's dive in.
1: Hello, Alex. Hello, Paul. I'm happy to be talking to you both today.
2: Great to talk to you, Maria. Great to be on.
1: I would like to start uh, this conversation by asking you to go back in time and remember the beginning of this journey with Conservation X Labs. What was that turning point in your life where you decided to start an organization of your own that focuses on innovation within conservation?
3: It all began on a rainy night on the shores of Lac Leman around the turn of the century. And as the rain came down, a knock came on my door, and a gentleman, wet from head to toe, was stepping out of his carriage and asking for a place. Shouting, nevermore, nevermore. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were introduced by a, a, a mutual friend. Um, I like to tell the story that uh, that that the journey all began with stopping to watch a game of soccer, uh, but that's because that's how I met this mutual friend of ours who had just returned from Afghanistan, uh, where he was actually working closely with Alex, and uh, and this guy Clay was in uh, in the same office at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency as I was, and had just returned from this, and and Clay and I uh, got to talking, and he told me a bit about this this fellow named Alex Dagan who uh, was had done some incredible stuff in Afghanistan and was uh, a really bright and brilliant thinker and loved uh, all things tech and innovation and really wanted to do big things with conservation and that that Alex and I should meet and uh, and so we were introduced.
1: So the big things in conservation that's what sold you and you Alex?
2: We, well well yeah maybe just to add because because Clay and I started talking about the need of a conservation organization and because we are both coming out of afghanistan we were thinking specifically about you know thinking about conservation as a national security you know imperative that conservation wasn't a nice to have but that it was actually necessary uh, for us to achieve security goals around the world for peace and stability to exist around the world for us to prevent conflict around the world, particularly just given uh, given um, climate change. We also recognized that in places like Afghanistan, there was an incredible amount of biodiversity, right? Afghanistan had more cat species than sub-Saharan Africa. It had animals from Indo-Malaysia, uh, from Europe, from Africa within a single country. It was this biological silk road. But people saw these places as devoid of life. And we saw a reason for that. So we were talking about something. In fact, the original name of the organization was C2SI, Conservation and Climate Security International. And uh, I met Paul at this cafe called Trist. Uh, which would literally become the home for conservation X labs in its first year. And I thought Paul was the most obnoxious person I had ever met. (laughs) uh, I was like, why is this guy arguing with me all the time? I think I was like, wait, like never bring this guy around again. But then like, I was sort of intrigued by him. And I realized I was a lot like this guy uh, and that we had actually a lot of things in common. I was working as chief scientist of the U.S. Agency for International Development on this time, really looking at how to improve how we were addressing the Millennium Development Goals and now the Sustainable Development Goals and how we use technology and innovation to do that. And and I was like, why aren't we using these approaches for conservation? And Paul had gotten this job at XPRIZE shortly after and I think had the same sort of insights of the uses of prizes and challenges. He saw these extraordinary innovators and technologies. And and we started talking, we started meeting up, meeting up at like cafes and restaurants around town. We were uh, in one of the first incubators in Washington DC, uh, a place called Affinity Labs. We couldn't afford to pay them anything. So they gave us a mailbox and like use of the conference room before 9 a.m. Was the only thing on Saturday on Saturdays only. (laughs) So we would get up at like six and just start working on. um, And Clay had gone back to Afghanistan at the time. And we had started working on on the development of this idea. There we saw CXL being born. That's and and Alex is totally right. As you know, as these ideas began
3: to take shape, there were there were, I think, a couple of recognitions that we had. In common that were that were you know one was the scale of the problem of of the extinction crisis of biodiversity loss of habitat destruction. I mean it's just it continues to rise. It's a, a fairly straightforward recognition that the things we've been doing globally to try to prevent that just aren't keeping up. Nobody's actually focused on on has has really effectively focused on the true drivers of extinction globally. It it, it becomes too much about the things that are right in front of you and, and one species here, one species there. Alex at USAID and building things like the, the, the Global Development Lab and the Grand Challenges for Development and Recognizing. And then, and then I, I am at, at XPRIZE working to you know, on these massive prize competitions for breakthroughs that, that are gonna transform energy systems, gonna transform the oceans, gonna transform space travel, you know, all of these things. And it becomes apparent that there are actually a, a number of things, tools in the toolbox uh as it were that, that that could lead to the kind of solutions that can scale up to meet the meet the 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 scope and, and scale of the of the problems that we're seeing in conservation and and they're being applied to other fields right and i think alex you articulate really well the sort of the transformation in global health um but also in development and and how they're starting to use not only these kinds of uh innovation techniques like prizes and challenges open innovation that you know capitalizing on the crowd, right? The phenomenon, the genius in the crowd. We don't have to build it alone. It's not like, it's not like you build a thing. It's what you do is you, you build an organization that is, it's like the transformation factory. It's the place that can, that, can, that, can, that can empower, enable people globally to create remarkable things and keep doing that and scale those things up over and over and over again. And there's the opportunity to really, really do something important.
1: I love that term, transformation factory. And I can really hear that still you guys look at the biggest environmental challenges and and how to solve them, that nothing has really changed from that first encounter where you guys shared all the grand problems you you really want to solve. But what I really want to know is like, what were your fears at the time? Or perhaps did you have any aces down the sleeve? I want to hear both, both the fears and both the aces.
2: As we were developing this idea, these ideas, I think we realized we were on to something. I had just gotten through with standing up this DARPA for international development. And it became kind of more and more painful as I was standing it up uh, because I had to spend my last year, I, I had to spend about 40 hours a week in meetings and I don't like meetings. And I, had to, <laughs> I really don't like meetings. Anyone that knows me knows I hate meetings. And then I had to spend... Like almost that last year, on the hill talking to Congress, Republicans and Democrats, win their support for this new initiative, and we got it. We got it through with unanimous support, which is extraordinary, just given the state of political dialogue in the United States right now. But I was really tired of funding entrepreneurs to do amazing things, even though I was an entrepreneur and building the institutions that allowed that to happen. I really wanted. I didn't want to talk about innovation entrepreneurship without really um, being part of it, without understanding what it meant to be an entrepreneur or an innovator, to start up a startup. So I was going to leave USAID. I was leaving USAID. I made the decision to do that, uh, to lead the Global Development Lab, uh, which was a really hard decision because I had poured blood, sweat, and tears. And that was also at the end of 10 years of government service across the judiciary, in the offices of three secretaries of state, been working as chief scientist at USAID. And I had this range of opportunities to, to lead some of the environmental schools in the United States, to lead, you know, I was in discussions to lead the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. I was in discussions to be various deans of universities to, to actually be the head of another science-based NGO. And then we got this, we got this first contract working with a partner organization. We were a for-profit at that time. We got this contract with the Australian government to run a prize on rethinking aquaculture. And it was really tough. Like we were working out of this cafe. I had hired Barbara to join me. She was pregnant. So it wasn't a great time for her uh, e- either. She was our, She's now our director of open innovation. I had a student who was in one of my classes at Duke call me and ask me for advice and say, well, my, my internship fell through. And I was like, great His advice was come work, come, come, come to America. Right? <laughs> come, come to come to work. And I literally We've put got him this at dirty my, couch cafe that you can sit in all day long. Well, <laughs> it was even better. I had him at the dining room table and every once in a while, Cara, my wife would come in and she'd be like, who is this? Why is there an office? Why is this a person working in our office? And uh, oh, oh, and my wife was pregnant and we were about to have a baby. And, uh, you know, you we're like. You can see the
3: whole advice about mitigating risk. Yes. Alex really to heart.
2: <laughs> really <laughs> like to heart. But I mean, the worst thing is we were month to month, like every month I wasn't sure that we would survive because of cash flow and other issues. I wasn't sure I could pay people. And I only had two people to pay. Well, one was an intern. And then we had the other person, Barbara. And then we had me. And like we couldn't even afford to pay me a full salary because we didn't have the cash flow. And I was just like, what did I do? And Paul was trying to help as much as possible. I mean,
3: is... <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and we're, not, and we're, I'm back and I'm in California now at this point, right? And, and not able, like, like Alex said, just, you know, family was not in a, in a position where I financially could leave my job at XPRIZE at that point and really, and really dive into this. So, so, um, <laughs> there's a lot of pregnancy because I think that that's when my wife was pregnant with our, with our last child, our youngest now. I remember that one of the tough things was trying my nights and weekends, whatever I could to, to, to contribute, but it ends up being primarily kind of on, on strategic things, you know, it's really hard to do the work at that point. And so, you know, the work of raising money, the work, you know, like Alex said, this is stressful times, the work of, of, of doing enough research to write into some of these grants or some into the, the analyses that go into the, the aquaculture work, for example. So mo- I feel like most of my job at that point was receiving very anxious phone calls from, from Alex, where he's, <laughs> but I can't do enough and, and wants more more help and support and uh, uh, which obviously he and Barbara and Jay totally deserved. And, and uh, it was like th- those,
2: those early days, I remember were, were hard and I, you know, I didn't have to take the same risk at those times. I couldn't. Uh, one of the things is when you, when you're in the leadership of an organization that gives away $20 billion a year, everybody wants to be your friend. And everybody wants you to, everybody wants you to speak at your conference. When you're starting a startup that has like very little money, uh, although we were giving away uh, $2.3 million for this aquaculture prize, very few people <laughs> want you to, w- will reach out to you. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a truism in, in Washington, which is the day after you've left a leadership position, you know, pay attention to who returns your calls. Uh, and, and, you know, happily, Paul was one of those people. But I was like, Paul, you got to come over. And Paul was, always was, was saying, I will. And, uh, and you I, don't, know, I don't know that Alex he, believed it though. That was, the I, of- I, I, I wasn't sure I was hopeful and he did. Uh, and, um, we had gotten things going and Paul was actually involved. It wasn't like he was actually not involved. He was just like <laughs> working nights and weekends and then would take vacation days to come out and help us, um, with things. And it was extraordinary. And he was incredibly ethical about it, uh, which I actually also really admired how well, you know, he was always respectful to, to uh, X-Prize, who, which he loves um, and he cares for deeply. Uh, but x clearly influenced both of us in, in that model and what we're trying to do. And then, then you know, about two years in, uh, on, on the first day of spring or almost the first day of spring, because that's uh, for the Persians, that's the Persian New Year. We had made that the symbolic start date for Paul to join us. And that's what he did. And it was extraordinary. And once, once Paul was with us, we were then cooking for, with guests.
1: I think that's just such a beautiful story. And, and it just inspires me that you, you kept on going no matter what. And the fact that your idea was really worth doing all that for So I actually would love to talk about that. How was this idea for Conservation X Labs transformative? How does CXL disrupt the current model of conservation
2: So one is we recognize our problems are exponential. Our solutions tend to be incremental, linear, right? So if you've got an exponential curve, you'll never catch up, right? And if we can't catch up to solving, you know, preventing the sixth mass extinction, the world will be a much worse place, including for our own species. And that requires us to then look at non-incremental solutions, which were by themselves, you know, inherently disruptive. And that was looking at technologies that were exponential themselves, right? And those problems are scaling exponentially because population is and consumption is. And the demand for all, as people move into middle class, the demand for all those materials that we have in every day of our lives has supply chains that reach back into the heart of the biodiversity we were protecting. And no one was doing that. I'd spent a career building national parks around the world, the first national park in Afghanistan, helping others build national parks in Madagascar and Russia and in Brazil. And that was insufficient if we didn't take the pressures off those parts. And that's why we said, well, not only do we look at the exponential solutions, we look at how they address the underlying drivers of extinction. What are those forces that are causing deforestation? And how do we think about how we replace those products, right? How we engineer resilience, how do we improve enforcement, right? Not just monitoring but literally turn it into actionable information that allows for a deterrence uh, to be there. How do we actually rewild some of these landscapes? And then how do we extinct the extincters, whether invasive species or invasive pathogens around it? I think some of the other things was that you know we needed to focus on solutions not just the problems and conservation has spent all this time on what species ranking all this effort for 36 years of ranking species by endangerment or landscapes by importance, but we haven't done the same evidence-based approach as to which solutions will have the biggest impact on extinction. And rarely do we do it right. We are still building national parks and writing endangered species. And that leads to kind of the third problem, which is that humans are in the middle of everything. Exactly. Um, and that that is a huge problem. Do you want to talk about that, Paul? It's not like it's a novel insight or anything
3: like this, but you know, throughout a big portion of the twentieth century, there was this separation between humans and nature, and it, and it almost there was almost this implication that somehow nature was somewhere else, and humans were 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 in our little hermetic situation. Um, there's a whole lot of philosophical reasons for that, and of course that's a that's a that's a gross overcharacterization, but. The fact is a lot of the way we've done conservation is is about putting up fences, right? Here's a park. People don't go in there, uh, for example, but not only is that you know, in a physical basis manifestly just false, right? There's, there is plastic pollution and garbage at the bottom of Mariana Trench, you know, a place that, that, uh, that, that only a, a handful of people have actually been in there in their encapsulated submarines. So we, we literally touch every every corner of the globe. And of course, our impact and our influence on a changing climate means that no matter what fences you put up on the landscape, the the the, the actions of humans are, are changing nature. But the flip, I think, is even more important, which is that we as humans are a part of nature and rely directly upon it, you know, for our food, for our clothing, for our water, for our enjoyment, right? I mean, there's all of the, the great thing I one what this is total sideline, but um. Biophilia, the, the, the notion that the humans are in, innately attracted and in, inspired and influenced by nature. It's, it's 100% true. There's lots of psychology research. One of my favorite examples of all time was the government of Finland took this research that's found that students learn significantly better when they're able just to see nature, see green, for example. And so what they did was they rebuilt all of their schools with massive windows, so that all day long, all students. And then they and then they implemented really long like recess periods, including in the winter in Finland, which is insane to me. And student educational attainment went through the roof, right? Just this inherent kind of kind of go between. And so putting humans at the center of of a a better future really is. It's not a radical idea, but it's certain. But doing it in a in a real way in an organization and having Conservation X Labs focus on the fact. That it's both humans that can can damage nature, but also benefit from it. it, means that it opens up the possible solutions to almost anything that we we do, you know, in our in our global economy. And that's really, really, really impactful because now, like Alex said, we're not just treating the symptoms of of habitat loss or species extinction or anything. We can think about making a better economy by re-engineering the causes, the drivers and that those solutions those those drive real optimism right because it's no it's no, we're no we no longer have to be optimistic about a future out of pure hope we can actually be optimistic because we're seeing changes and transformations i mean just think about the rise of plant-based protein alternatives right the growing meat causes a lot of damage globally but but if we can if we can get protein into people's bellies <laughs> you know from plants all of a sudden we've got a solution that, that is transformative for, for you know our health of course but you know, all, you know really for, for the planet that's where the optimism comes from
2: and then the last piece I think that we really focus on is how do we get these solutions to scale I And mean, we love you know uh, all the multitude of approaches and ideas and creativity but if we're not on the scale of hundreds of millions of people, if we're not fundamentally affecting and changing the main economic drivers around the world, we will never be successful as conservationists. And we have these conservation schools and they are teaching curriculum that are ill suited for any of their students to actually solve the problems. When in fact, we need innovators and entrepreneurs that come from a multitude of backgrounds and places. We need to not demonize business, but harness business and the market forces to ensure that these better alternatives get to scale, which means really designing products that work for the consumers or the places as we've been trying to do around replacing air conditioning technology to address climate change. And Paul was just you know, working with the Indian government and another member of our team, Chad Gallinette and the Rocky Mountain Institute, SEPT University and some other partners on that.
3: Yeah, so one of the things that we do is 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 take this approach that that Alex mentioned of the underlying drivers of extinction. And uh, obviously, climate change is 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 both a direct driver, but also a force multiplier for for things like extinction. It damages things globally. And there's a wonderful organization and an analysis that was done, project drawdown that I'm sure a lot of a lot of folks know. And in one of their first uh, analyses, it came out that that indoor cooling was one of the one of the sort of lowest hanging fruits or the the biggest bang for your buck. If you were able to transform and improve air conditioning, in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, that, that that one change could 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 lead to you know more GHDs being pulled off for, for every dollar spent than than any any other sort of thing that they analyzed at that time. And so we said this is perfect. We we know how to do this. Things like technologies and things like markets and profit, uh, and things like human behavior, these are all tools that we can utilize. These are they are not they are not value judgments, good or bad, one way or the other, right? They are are things that you can use to to incentivize in the right direction. And with cooling, what we found was there was this fundamental market failure where there's a very limited number of manufacturers of air conditioners globally. In fact, there are only two manufacturers that that make 70% of the core air conditioners, even though they're sold under lots of different brands, right? So they had no incentive to change, right? The the market is not telling them that you need to make a better thing. What the market is telling them is it's getting hotter globally. There are more people moving into the middle class. Please make more air conditioners. And they're saying, well, great, we'll just keep making more. So what we want to do is change that dynamic. And and this global cooling prize, which allowed us to ask innovators to come up with something that was at least five times better for the environment, five times better for climate. Just to give you a sense the, the very best air conditioners you can buy today for, to, to put in your, in, your, you know, in your window at home and, and cool yourself off are only about 13% as efficient as they could be of, of the sort of theoretical efficiency. They're just, they're, they're crap. <laughs> they're, they're terrible. What we wanted was reduce the climate, the GHG emissions, the, the impact on the climate at least five times. And not only did the, the, these innovators do this with, with eight amazing finalists, the two winners ultimately 10 x the, the the previous technology ten times better for the planet uh, than that right at 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 a cost barely more than what the average cost of an air conditioner is now right so uh, and in fact those two winners they're manufacturers themselves and so they're able to start start building this out and if you here's the very cool thing right working with the Indian government is important because this is already the largest market for this for air conditioners globally but it's expected to double in the next in the next couple of decades as well and to continue to continue to grow you can imagine how many people are there it's a it's a it's a hot country the indian government is working now to make this the the the, the technology of, of the future and ensure that these are the things that, that get built and when that happens what we're doing is reducing uh, reducing greenhouse gases uh, 0.5 to 1 degree celsius off of the grid off of the map by by the end of the century like literally one of the most transformative things you can do and when we when you talk about potentially reducing impact by a degree globally with one fell swoop by these brilliant innovators that, that, that do this sort of thing. And then all of the hard work, of course, that goes into setting the market conditions and such, but, but, but the trains mo- moving now. Um, I mean, this is the equivalent, Alex, remind me it's, it's like add Australia and Finland together and all of their emissions annually off the map kind of thing. Right. You just, it, it, which, which is not small. This becomes the harnessing of, of human needs and human incentives in a way that aligns directly with what our planet needs to, to thrive
2: conservatively, my guess is a 1% inc- increase in temperature could be potentially incre- equivalent to preventing 1% species extinction. Wow. So that that's 90,000 90, species that you could prevent from going extinct, mm-hmm. uh, which is extraordinary.
1: It really is. Yeah, I was just going to say that same word extraordinary is everything that you guys do really, to be honest, the first time I read about Conservation X Labs, I just felt like relief. I was like, this is what the world needs. And I'm so glad it exists. And why isn't everyone doing this? Uh, <laughs> and so um, I do want to touch upon uh, the work that is happening now and the current projects that give you hope. It doesn't have to be all because I know Conservation X loves does so much, but just the, the ones you want to share.
3: Can I just give a shout out to the 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 reason that we do so much and the reason that, that I think this is this is so exciting is yeah conservation x lives at its at its core I think we've mentioned this a few times though it's about it's about you know providing access to be able to solve problems to everyone right and and we have you know it's not our phrase it's it, it, it comes from a lot of places but we we love the recognition that talent is everywhere but opportunity is not and so if we at cxl if we can create the opportunity for brilliant engineers and physicists and, and artists and designers and economists and psychologists and, and everything everywhere, that gives the opportunity to, to that's scale ultimately, right? And the, the reason I think that, that we can do so much is because we have an amazing team, uh, but that amazing team is here to empower even more people around the world to do incredible things. And that, that kind of leverage, that kind of network effect scales. And so that's, you know, just at its core, I want I want to give a shout out to literally every the the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that that have have come through CXL's family in just the just a few years that we've been alive because that's that's what gives us such
2: optimism about the future. I think. Um, and with that, maybe Alex, do you want to tell, do you want to talk about a couple of like the, the challenges? I actually was going to say something really similar. I I think the thing that gives me optimism is not any single challenge. But it's that we are changing the nature of who's in conservation itself and the nature of the solutions that are now available. Whether or not they've been created by us directly, they've been created and and sourced through our grand challenges and scaled through some of our scaling programs. They've been created on things like our digital makerspace or that we have inspired other people, other organizations, other entities to move in this sector Uh, which we have seen happen wholesale. And I think like that is incredibly awesome. I also want to give a shout out to the exploring podcast, New Maria, because that gives me hope too. And I think that is one of the really awesome things I've been so impressed with. And I think one of the things that makes conservation X labs unique is that um, we really believe that that extinction is our only competitor which to us means that we should be supporting as much and as many people as we can to achieve success in this space, to create whole new communities of solvers, to create a whole new way of even teaching what we're trying to do. And so along those lines, you know, we are, you know, we're trying to replace food, feed, fiber and materials uh, using bio-based alternatives through things like the microfiber challenge or our aquaculture challenge. You know, or the cooling technologies that we use in it in those programs. We're trying to address invasive species and emerging pests and pathogens because if you look at the research and you look at animals that have gone extinct, they have gone extinct because generally the invasives or the pathogens are the knockout blow. And we're seeing this rise of pathogens. So we want to take advantage of it. We describe ourselves as an open foundry,
3: which means. CXL is taking the best of open innovation. So these are uh, prizes and challenges, mass collaboration, hackathons, the anything that opens up the opportunity for new solvers and new ideas to come in. And then we're combining that with the best of a, of a startup foundry or studio, where we actually build teams that in internal engineering capacity to really create and and uh, create amazing solutions. Right now, these two things get tied together because now we're able to scale up the number of solutions that get developed and ultimately scaled out.
2: Yeah, I was actually gonna. I was actually gonna go into some of the actual solutions themselves. I think that are uh, yeah. that have been out there. So, you know, one of the ones that I think we talk about, sort of disrupting conservation and existing conservation institutions, but the other part of it is that we're actually trying to empower those conservationists and those conservation institutions as well. And one of the programs I really, uh, one of our products that I think is really potentially disruptive is the Sentinel program. And this is a program where you've got a million something camera traps distributed around the world. And you, and I've used these, you know, historically in my research, you set them out in the field for 30 days. You've got to go back and check them. You've probably had a squirrel, which, you know, uh, ran in front of your camera trap, depleted the battery and you got no images of the snow leopard or, or, or probably be or the Jaguar or whatever you are looking for the wolf that you're looking for in that particular place. And you know, you, you've got serious problems. You don't have the data when you need it and how you need it. And what the Sentinel has allowed us to do is by replacing one piece of those camera traps rather than building a new camera trap, we can, which is the memory card, we can actually add an auxiliary unit that allows you to do edge AI. So processing for machine vision and machine learning on that device and then using low bandwidth ways, update that system over the air. So if you are looking for a snow leopard, it will send you in real time or near real time, that image of that snow leopard, that piece of information. But then it also allows us to start doing other things. We can start looking for a poacher carrying a gun. We can start looking at behaviors and actually automatically classifying those behaviors, which has been a huge amount of work as a behavioral scientist, just in terms of my own work, spent years (laughs) doing, doing this effort. We can accelerate and add leverage to our ability to do so. We can start looking for diseases among populations of species and what we're doing. And then the best part is that you don't need to know anything about machine vision or machine learning because we have essentially created the App Store equivalent based on a um, extremely large acoustical uh, database and then an imagery database that's in the 10s Uh, over 25 million images, highly curated, that allow you to build models on the fly and update them to your system as easy as it is to download an app on the App Store. Because no one needs to learn machine vision that's already doing conservation. You just, you don't, you need to understand the assumptions that might be within what you're doing, but you just need to get the data that you're looking for. You know, how well does this work? What are your errors of confidence? And, and then, can I actually get the jaguars that are passing from this camera trap and start looking at elements of, of of its conservation and understand what the pressures on that system are? I think that's an extraordinary innovation. If I can do one other one that I think is really extraordinary, uh, this came through our digital makerspace and our prototyping competitions. It was called uh, Lobster Lift, and it dealt with this problem that there's a million lines for lobster traps in the water between. Florida, and Maine. And those lobster traps are one of the two major sources of mortality for the right whale, which is a population in the hundreds on the East Coast of the United States. Uh, Serious danger of extinction due to ship strikes. And what this team did, this is not a CXL team, the Sentinel is a CXL team, is build a system that using a sonic key and it eliminates the lines. An inflation unit literally brings these... Uh, creates balloons that inflate underwater and carries the lobster trap to the surface. So you can ensure that you don't have the extinction of the right whale. And these are extraordinary innovations that like have come through the community through our own engineering uh, that we have that I think are completely transformative in our ability to solve extinction.
1: So what role do you think that conservation X lab will be playing in the near or far future of global environmental protection, if it's already transforming the way conservation looks like right now.
3: Honestly, what, what we regard is in in order for in order for us to be successful in preventing the sixth mass extinction, and ultimately, in order for us to be successful as a civilization that that thrives in concert with the with the the, the natural world and not in a on a on a, on a Marscape of of, of nothing. Conservation needs to be integral to absolutely every aspect of human life and economy. And the analogy Alex uses, which I love, is is if you imagine a great river uh, that is the economy flowing and flowing and flowing, uh, conservation has tended to be these like tiny little canals that every once in a while get built parallel to that river. Hey, let's go do something nice for the environment over here. Um, And it's never going to stop the river. It's never going to help it change its course. It's just going to keep pumping, pumping, pumping what we need to do is get to a point where conservation is that main channel is that river itself where where the economy in and our activity is actually entirely integrated with doing things that are sustainable that protect other species that actually and ultimately protect the sorts of services and resources and things that allow us humans to to exist to and to, and to and to and to enjoy and the great thing is you can picture this we can all imagine this and we have the tools to to enable this. We also, you know, while 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 we are extremely proud of, of the amazing work that that everybody who's come through CXL and has, has done, we recognize that our job is to help turn conservation from that side channel into the main, into the main river. And the only way to do that is really by by growing the number of solutions like lobster lift that that, that get created, whether we build the next product like Sentinel in-house or otherwise. And so that means that over the next few years, the sort of near term, we continue to expand the solution identification and solution development programs that we have, and we scale those up, uh, capitalizing on these network effects, and in, in, in order to to get to this this for sort of future vision that that most of us hold, this view of of a future that is that is thriving. What this means is that is that conservation is no longer off by itself; it's actually. Something we all practice, even if you don't call yourself a conservationist, because your job is uh, teaching, and and all of a sudden, you know that you you're a fifth grade teacher, and what you're teaching are these new principles of 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 wow, you, hey, this kid really loves math. There's a way for this kid to do something amazing. Hey, this is a, this kid's an artist. There's a way to actually be a part of that main river channel now, in a way that that that, that wraps everything up. And and the more that we see XL can empower that, the more programs that we can we can partner on with others, or the more that we can start up ourselves to enable that. Uh, that's you know that's the next few years of of, of growth.
1: Yeah, I think you've inspired me to call myself a conservationist by just doing this podcast.
0: <laughs> for,
3: for those are. Of, for those you of you are. that don't know, I, I want to give a little like inside baseball for you listeners. This podcast, uh, Maria is is incredible. Uh, we 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 last year. No, you're going to get this because I, I don't think people know the story. And so, when the, when the when the pandemic is raging last year, we started a program called the Epic Fellowships to give uh, brilliant young people an opportunity to join us and do something just amazing to create it and. Amy Richards, our uh, yeah, unbelievably amazing creative director and, and head of communications here at CXL, said we got to do a podcast, and she interviewed and found Maria Koenig here, and said this this woman, this young woman's going to work with me and and going to do something. When, and Alex and I say, great, this is great. You guys run with this, and uh, and everything Maria that you've done then to develop out the scope of this, your your skills at interviewing are just like Alex and I were talking the first time we heard. Your first interview with Ian Urbino, which was amazing. We were blown away. We're like, "Good lord, this is," you know. We patted ourselves a little bit on the back for creating a program that that allowed us to to find talent like you. But really, it's you know, it's a testament to to talent like you for for saying, "Hey, I am a conservationist. I got something I can do," and uh, I get inspired by listening to to your interviews. And so, thank you for 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 showing showing the the CXL model better than I think we could ever describe it.
1: I'm tearing up. Oh, thank you so much, and I love my job, and I love Conservation X Labs. It's it's a dream come true to work here, and yeah, this podcast is amazing. I'm so glad this is the final episode of season one because I really wanted the world to get to know the story of Conservation X Labs because it is really incredible. I always end my uh, episodes with this burning question of what are you hoping to explore? But for you guys, I thought I'll spice up the question. And I want to ask you if there's something that you hope to explore that seems quite mind blowing when you think of it now, but you still want to explore and go for it.
2: One of those areas is really the idea of can we rethink our materials so that our materials that we are using are not take you know not putting carbon into the environment but are literally almost living entities can we grow our buildings can we grow our houses can we have entities that are part of the environment and contributing to the environment taking carbon out of the air returning returning resources to you know how do we transform our cities to, to create closed-loop cities or closed-loop buildings or closed-loop houses or closed-loop you know industries across the world, um, what does that look like? And I think that idea is kind of an extraordinary one. And how do we build the products that go in, in it? I have one other one is, you know, I've heard the statistic that I've just found amazing that there are 10,000 edible plants in our oceans. And that's the second one is just like, there is these incredible fastest growing things we have are things like macroalgae. And if we can literally tap into some of that, and again, increase the habitat, increase the needs to protect uh, these, the oceans and their, the ocean and it's incredible biodiversity. These two things for me are really, really on the forefront of some of the things I'm excited about.
3: He stole mine. <laughs> really? <laughs> Yeah, I look, the biggest thing we could do is 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 reinvent, reimagine how it is that 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 we like like you said, not build our homes but grow our homes and and how do we feed ourselves and how do we how do we do that in a way that everybody gets to participate. Actually, that might be the one thing I would add is really excited about about our expansion globally. Like Alex said made made this point, which is a really good one. That, that there's so many people around the world that are literally on the front lines of our biggest environmental challenges. And we're right now asking them to bear the burden of those challenges, be it pollution or, or, or deforestation uh, or whatnot. I'm excited to flip that and give empower them to be the ones that are on the front lines of solving the problems. We're going to launch soon the second round of an artisanal scale and small scale mining competition focused on gold mining in the Amazon. And I won't go into the details if anybody's interested take a look on our website or, or Google about this because uh, it's remarkably destructive. Um, and we're asking these poor miners in places like Peru and, and Brazil and other places to, to bear the, the, the damage of pollution and, and mercury. This challenge, we're giving them the opportunity and others globally to think, rethink new solutions so that we can actually have the gold that powers our laptops and phones in other ways. I want, I'm excited to expand that and expand that into especially food, materials, fiber. How do we give everybody... Uh, that, that chance at, at creating a better, a better world.
1: I'm excited. And I do think that you guys can make everything possible. So these far-fetched ideas are just normal ideas in your scale. So I just want to thank you for the conversation. Uh, it was really great to get to know the stories I haven't heard yet. I had a great time talking to you guys today.
2: We love talking to you, Maria. And congratulations on uh, hosting this amazing first season.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Conservation X Labs, head to conservationxlabs.com and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with all the ways you could get involved and more. Although this is the last episode of season one, it is just the beginning of our journey of exploration, as we will be coming back with a really fun and thought-provoking season two this fall. It was my pleasure to be bringing all these stories to you thus far, and I wish you happy exploring.